if I can care for others, if I listen to others, learn from others, reach out to others, and do so in a way that helps them, that helps me with my strength and my composure. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to help us make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. Hi, everyone. I'm Renee Cordes with the Maine Biz Podcast team. Today's guest is Tim Dentry, President and CEO of Northern Light Health, an integrated healthcare system based in Brewer, Maine. The son of a nurse and grandson of a country doctor in Maryland, Tim is here to talk about a varied career that has taken him to countries including Ethiopia and the United Arab Emirates. He will share some of his international experience with us. He will also reflect on his return to the United States in late 2016 and experience so far in Maine, where he took the reins at Northern Light in April 2020, a role he never expected when he joined the company four years earlier. Let's find out more. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. Good to be here with you. Great. So to get started, tell us about a little bit about your background, where you're from, where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in really farm and horse country in the northern part of Maryland, north central Maryland. And my mom was a nurse. My granddad was a country doc, and I'm the youngest of eight kids. And some of my earliest childhood memories are being in the living room of my granddad's house. But that was the waiting room because off to the side of his living room slash waiting room was his examining room. That's where he took care of patients. And I know that a lot of patients paid for his services by bringing him bags of produce, you know, bags of of vegetables that they had farmed themselves. Or he would turn around and give it to people if he felt that there was food insecurity in in their home. So that's kind of the the values, if you will. And and with my, my mom, a registered nurse and a woman of leadership because of that, you know, and my, my granddad with his care and service to the community. I just learned a lot from those amazing role models. Previously, you talked about your first job in healthcare being when you were four years old, helping your mom. I was four years old. And my job, if you all recall, that nurses back in the day had their nurse's cap and they had white shoes. And those white shoes, obviously, we get scuffed up all the time if you're a busy nurse. And so that was my job. Mom would come home from work, take off her shoes, and I would stick my little four-year-old hand inside her shoes, still warm, and I would take out that sponge and I would, I would polish her shoes every day. And so she would always go to work the next day with, with a clean set of shoes. So very important job that you had. And wh- when did you start thinking or imagining yourself working in healthcare one day? I went to Loyola in Maryland, and I was a medical technology major, and I worked in laboratory medicine in Mercy Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, where I was born, where half of my siblings were born. Oh. And, and I thought, that's it. I've found you know, my calling. That's the end of my training and development. I'll be just fine with that. And then two months later, 
I thought, well, you know, I really don't know how to like balance a checkbook or what if I had to buy a house one day? You know, I didn't spend any time on sort of the economics and finance and things like that. And so I looked back into Loyola and they had a master of business administration degree, MBA degree with the healthcare focus. And I thought, well, sure, I'll try this. So my time of thinking, my personal academic development was over lasted about a month. And then I was back into it. And then as I did that and, and got my MBA, all this was while I was still at Mercy Hospital in Baltimore. And I, I got to know some of the people in leadership positions there. And they said, you know, Tim, we have this program. We haven't had it in about a decade, but it, it's called administrative residency. And we'll open it back up for you if you wouldn't mind staying for another year before you look, you know, to see where your new MBA is going to take you. And what it has to do is you'll be able to spend a year going through every nook and cranny of this hospital and understanding big picture to small details. And so that's what I did. And it was just a fabulous experience. And so I worked my way to chief operating officer and then went from there to another Catholic health system, the Sisters of Bon Secours, and worked with them for a few years until I was offered a position as president and CEO of a relatively small community hospital in upstate New York. And that was part of a, a larger health system. And I thought, okay, this is my career goal. I want to be a CEO of a hospital. I have that. I'm, I'm at this place in upstate New York. And so once again, I was at a point in my career where I thought, yeah, that's it. And that thought didn't last a very long, even though I was there for about five years. But I really became a bit disillusioned with healthcare at that time that I felt there was, it was too much of a dose of profitability and doing things less for community health, population health, and in partnership with others in the community. And so that just didn't feel right with me. I wanted to be more mission-driven. And I wanted to do something in my career where I gave back because so many had given to me. So I also felt that I wanted to expand my horizons and do something internationally. And I actually found the program that was in Ethiopia, in East Africa, and it was called the Ethiopian Hospital Management Initiative. And Yale University and the Clinton Foundation sponsored that program. Had you ever thought about going to medical school? Did that thought ever cross your mind? No, like I said, you know, the, it really, it was not a, it was not a big part of my career intent or path at any point in time. So you studied medical technology. What was medical technology defined as in those days? What was medical technology like at the time? What a great, fascinating question, because it really is different today. Medical technology really was at the time. It was, you know, doing blood glucose with your hands, mixing it up as a mixologist would. It was for microscopic work, doing things by hand to get the specimen already on the slide, you know, and doing your own count with your own eye, not having the computer do it. Nowadays, so much of all of that that I've said is, is micro samples, microscopically done, automated. So it truly is technology. The technology back then was the technologist. And I was one of them. 
Interesting. Interesting. So now let's jump ahead. You had already mentioned, you know, your first international experience. Where was your first assignment? And do you remember your sort of first day? I think in Ethiopia is where your first international assignment was. You know, the, the first day and first week, it would be in Ethiopia. And what I recall so much was that, again, I was the in-country director of the program. And half of the fellows were junior fellows fresh out of Master of Health Administration, MHA school in Yale University. So they were real, real young. And many of them had never been out of the United States. I had barely been out of the United States, definitely had not lived or worked out in the United States. And so I had young graduates, you know, first time out of the U.S., women, men that were put into these kind of situations. So what I remember the most is some really frayed nerves, some high emotions of people trying to adjust and deal with that, with lack of plumbing with lack of electricity, you know, things of that nature. Never physically unsafe because I think people respected the fact that we were there to try to help them improve their healthcare infrastructure. But I, I remember the people that I was responsible for really being, some of them ready to go, some of them in tears, some of them asking that, you know, they get a different assignment at a different place. And so trying to make sure that everybody was okay, make sure that everybody was safe, make sure that everybody was cared for. Certainly that was a lot on your shoulders. You know, how, how did you keep it all together, you know, to be able to, you know, support all these, these folks? Yeah, that, uh, that's another great question. You know, and it's something I've, I've, I've learned over the years too, is that and maybe it is a defense mechanism on my part so that I don't have to face what my own personal, you know, emotions might be in situations like that. But if I can care for others, if I listen to others, learn from others, reach out to others and do so in a way that helps them, that helps me with my strength and my composure. There must have been some tough days too, I'm sure. I mean, daily life was, was no picnic. Right. Right. Yeah. I can remember it was, again, it was in the second year when I was out more into the hinterlands and left in the high population areas and closer to tough areas. I mean, where Al Qaeda was around in Somalia at that time, you know, and, and on the other side in Sudan, there was a civil war there that was bleeding literally into Ethiopia. I can remember on, on, on that side, the, the Sudanese side, I went to this one hospital, it's relatively new, and the, the head of the hospital said, well, first of all, I just graduated from medical school about six months ago. Oh, well. and, and if you graduate as a good you know, student, they'd say, congratulations, you now go run that hospital, go figure it out. What? And he said that the first, within the first two days, People were, again, walking, and they had walked for days, and they had machete cuts, and they had all sorts of other, you know, really, you know, deep problems. So to try to figure out, you know, how do you help that kind of a hospital? So, you know, supply chain and, you know, other, you know, safety issues and things like that. And I, you were in other places in the world as well, Abu Dhabi. I'm thinking of it, talking about culture. You talked a bit about the, the workplace culture, what that was like. So share a bit of that. 
Yeah, when the the two-year program with Yale University was beginning to wind down, um, I thought, you know what, I, I've, I've gotten so much out of this. I would like to see if I could continue with my career in an international sense. And back in my hometown is Johns Hopkins University, Johns Hopkins Medicine. And I just started to look into us. I just, I wondered, I wonder if they have something that's international, a similar kind of a program. And wow, was I amazed. You know, they're in like, in one way, shape or form, every country in the world in multiple ways, whether it's the Bloomberg School of Public Health or other of the, the clinicians doing clinical studies or, I mean, you name it, it's unbelievable how much, you know, right there in my hometown, how much they do across the globe. So I reached out. So you out. could have gone anywhere. I mean, the world was your, your oyster. That and that's kind of what happened in the first few, in the first four years I was with, I ended up being hired by Johns Hopkins International, they called it, Johns Hopkins Medicine International. And I was hired as a, a managing director. And so I was given a certain part of, of the world and certain functions and initiatives. So we went to Trinidad and Tobago, for example, and we initiated with incredible clinicians at Hopkins. That was, that was fabulous. There was a hospital in Panama they, that just started, but they were trying to make that hospital work. So we brought in quality programs. There was an initiative in Beirut, Lebanon, which was all about making sure that a, a couple of particular specialties like head and neck surgery were done incredibly well. So it was really great because I had this vast resource at Johns Hopkins that I could tap into whatever you know, the, the individual need was, you know, in Tokyo Midtown, there was an initiative there where we did things for, they wanted to do, they, since they're trying to get their workers to work so much all the time, they would have these little, they wanted to use their clinic where people would come after work or during or for lunchtime and get an infusion of antibiotics or vitamins or whatever, and go back and be able to work another 20 hours. Oh, definitely. And, and I brought in quality experts and clinicians saying that's not the right way to go about doing it. So it was multifaceted in so many different places. And that was for the first three years when I was with Johns Hopkins. But a big part of what we were doing back to Abu Dhabi was to manage hospitals. And then the, the big hospital had an opening, had a transition as CEO. And, they, and so they, the Emiratis asked that I be their CEO for that hospital as well. And so that was absolutely really such a learning experience for me. And yes, different from what I just shared in, in Ethiopia, because in Ethiopia, I think, you know, the limitlessness of human potential is kind of the headline that I have there. Mm-hmm. In, in Abu Dhabi, it's a small population. The local population is only about 2 million. They have to bring in people from all around the world for every industry, every sector of their economy including and especially healthcare. But at the same time, I felt that I was there to teach the Emiratis, to help them, to mentor them, to run their own health system. And so that was, that was a big part of what I did. But going in and, and, and approaching that as CEO, what I discovered was the, first of all, we needed to do things to improve quality. You know, there are quality outcomes, quality metrics, things that we either take for granted in America or we are all striving for in America as well. So what I, what I discovered was in order to 
have performance improvement and really change things, we needed to form teams and have a process. And Hopkins had a great process and great way to make teams work. But when you're there with the people, what you see is, and what I saw then, was predominantly male, Middle Eastern physician workforce and predominantly female nursing workforce. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, predominantly from, from other countries like India and Philippines. And so there was a real cultural, you know, blockage of being able to sit down and work things out as a team. You came in as an outsider, as a foreigner to try and get them to work together, together as a team. Right. How hard was that? Yeah. Well, I think, I think, I don't know if it was my first year, probably, let's say for, it was better part of the first year I tried the traditional approach. Here's how we do it. Here's the Hopkins playbook. Here's the checklist, you know, like, come on. And you could, I could just tell we weren't getting anywhere because then the results wouldn't change, you know, and they would be there and they would be polite and respectful, but we just weren't getting anywhere. So I remember a breakthrough moment for me was I just, I, I said, all right, let's stop. And I want to apologize. So I apologize to everyone. And I said, I'm expecting you to adopt something that's from a whole different culture, a whole different mindset and way of thinking. And what it's all about is you, because you're the ones that are here at three o'clock in the morning. You're the ones that are, are making all this happen. And you know, we need teamwork. We need to rally around this together. And, and so then barriers started to come down and leaders started to rise. And I would give more responsibility, give more limelight, et cetera, to those that were the natural born leaders. So our shared language was about hospital quality improvement as opposed to all those other things. And then it took off and it took about three, four months before we then, there were eight hospitals in this, in this public health system in Abu Dhabi. And we became the number one hospital for all the key performance measures, especially quality. It's measured every quarter. And for two and a half years, we were the number one hospital in Abu Dhabi. Obviously, you were doing something right. So, so Tim, now tell us how you got from Abu Dhabi back to your home country, the United States. When did you start thinking about a return here? Yeah, thanks. Well, just by luck, and it really is. Just by luck, I got a call. I was I was home on a, a summer vacation for a couple week vacation, and about in the middle of it, I got an email from a recruiting firm about the chief operating officer position for it was called East Germain Healthcare Systems at the time, and then became Northern Light Health. And I had one day sort of unspoken for on my calendar before I had to get on the plane and head back, and so I thought, well, you know. Maybe that, that's a good way to do this. Maine, I like to see Maine. Let's see what they have to offer. Now, <laughs> what did you know about Maine? Had you ever been? To- oh, I I had been to Maine probably just after my my undergrad college days. You know, for a week vacation, stayed at you know Booth Bay, and uh, did you know did a lot of fishing there. I remember caught a, a boatload of literally several boatloads of smallmouth bass and had a fish fry. And always always loved it. You know. Uh, ate steamers and, you know, tons of lobster and things of that nature. So I, so I knew, obviously, my frame of reference was that it's a very natural state. 
I didn't know the people, but based on my experience of getting to know different people, I thought, well, it's going to be wonderful getting to know someone, you know, in, in one of the states of the U.S. that I'm, I'm not familiar with. But at the same time, and far prior to I coming to Maine just for that one interview, family members and dear friends, as, you know, I was staying in touch with them all through this whole story, this whole journey that I've been sharing with you, they'd say, yeah, Tim, that's really great. That's really fascinating. When are you coming back to America? <laughs> and yeah, Tim, that's really great. We need healthcare leaders like you here in America. And so I kept listening to that. So maybe that I, I felt we might be approaching the time to do something about that. It had been, you know, more than a decade, essentially, that I'd been away. And so I thought, okay, let's, let's look into this. And so I thought that the, it felt that the culture within EMHS and the Northern Light was right. It was, you know, people that cared about community. I liked the fact that it wasn't a health system just based in a big city where, you know, uh, competitive forces dominate between big, heavy-handed health systems. It seemed like we were more about, and we are, even more so now, about care in the communities. That's very specific to those communities that are each individually different. So I just thought this is appealing to a part of me that I'm, I really would look forward to working with and contributing to in my, hopefully my last years in healthcare. And so I found myself interviewing for that position and I felt that I would, and when I was offered the position, I felt, well, that's really great. That'll be my last job, chief operating officer of Northern Light Health until it wasn't my last job. It was my that, next to the last job. That's right. You didn't know that at the time. So anyway, we're going to take a very short break and then we will continue with this fascinating story. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. You don't need all sorts of planning means and things like that or something that's clear that you need to do, just do it and figure it out as you get going. We are back talking to Tim Dentry, president and CEO of Northern Light Health. Tim was just talking about his start as chief operating officer of the company in December 2016. Tim, for listeners uh, not familiar with Northern Light Health, uh, can you just share a few words about what Northern Light Health does? Absolutely. So Northern Light Health is a healthcare delivery system. But more importantly, we are all about making healthcare work for the citizens of the great state of Maine. And there are different ways, obviously, that we need to be accessible and provide quality services. And that is through hospitals. We have 10 hospitals from Presque Isle to Portland. And the largest hospital is in Bangor. That's Eastern Maine Medical Center. But we're also in multiple other communities around the state. And each community is individually unique and different. And so that's what we strive to do is make sure that that hospital is the community treasure that everyone 
wants it to be and expects it to be. We also have home care and hospice services. And we have physicians' offices, specialists in primary care practices around the state. And of course, all the other things that come along with that as far as laboratory services and imaging and and things of that nature. So what we try to do is make sure that we are as, as well integrated as possible so that we're easy to understand for the consumers, easily accessible. And it's hard to do that in healthcare in, in America. There are a lot of limitations on, on a lot of different things. But I think we've made really tremendous strides, especially through COVID, of earning the trust and respect of those that we, that we serve. We also have over 12,000 colleagues, 12,000 employees. And many of our communities were the largest employer in the community. That's right. And you had been outside the United States, you know, working in a number of different places over a decade, I think you said. You know, what, what, what struck you, you know, the most about healthcare in the United States upon your return? Obviously, a lot had changed since the days you were, you know, a, a student or, or young graduate. You know, I think, first of all, when you think in terms of that answer with cultural differences, so let the, I'll talk about the healthcare sector in a second, sure. cultural differences. You know, it's, it's, it, it was not a real shock impact and I didn't see barriers than one would normally think when I was overseas. Those cultural <laughs> situations of Habesha and then, you know, the Emiratis were, are fabulous. And I'm still in direct contact with several of them that I mentored and they call me brother. I call them brother and they wish me Merry Christmas. And I, I, you know, wish them fabulous holidays for them as well. Ramadan and, and their other holidays that they have throughout the year. So just a great deal of, of not barriers, but almost like bonds, even with and, and especially due to the cultural differences. So, you know, the cultural difference wasn't really much there, if anything, much of an impediment. If anything, there are much more that we all have in common. The universal truth. People, you know, want to be safe. People, when they need care, they want it to be quality. People want to feel good about their contribution for others. You know, I, I just found that a higher ground and a higher calling is what I felt I was absolutely ready to do here when I started as chief operating officer and then further as CEO. But also, to, to your question, I experienced more of a cultural shock upon getting back to the state. And I'm not going to go into you know any of the things that you see on the news necessarily and all those kinds of things. That's not what I mean. I mean, specifically for healthcare. I see wider cracks in the delivery system due to lack of capital investments, lack of investments into developing people and, and training programs and that kind of a thing. I see highly stressed workforce that I didn't see a decade or earlier. And I see almost like every person for themselves sometimes. So I you, will What do you say, mean every person for themselves? Like every health system, we're not going to work together. We're going to, you know... You have, we need more resources than you, the other health system, you have it, so I'm going to take it, you know, or even within a health system, people thinking, I'm just looking out for what I have to do to get through this day, as opposed mm -hmm. to how can we build teamwork? We've done a lot of that in Northern Light Health constantly. We have what we call our culture of caring and it starts with a culture that cares for one another. And I reinforce that constantly because it's about building teamwork. It's about working together. It's about helping someone else's load 
And I think we've made some good progress along those lines. So, Tim, you said this a few minutes ago, you know, when you took this chief operating officer in late 2016, you thought you would be in that role for a while. I think you also served for a time as interim director of one of the hospitals in the system. I, I did. And this was as I was still also chief operating officer, the position of president of Northern Light Eastern Maine Medical Center was open. And I said at the time, you know what? I think we need to earn trust and respect with the medical community and, and all other staff at Eastern Maine Medical Center. So I think I need to show them that we're in this together. So I volunteer to be the interim president while we continue with our permanent search. So it was right after the interim position at EMMC was completed. And I think we did earn the trust and we tore down a lot of the barriers that had existed either in people's minds or in reality between, you know, the overall health system and our big flagship at the time. So we really made good progress and we recruited the permanent president, it's Rando Leary, and he's been doing a great job since then. And I thought, okay, I'll get back to being chief operating officer. And within a very brief period of time, it was announced that there were, that our CEO would be going to another position, American Hospital Association, and that that position was open. Did you at that time think that you think about applying for that position? Was that in, in your mind when you heard the news? Well, I think it was in my mind, but I wasn't like diving right in as soon as I heard the news that it was open. First, out of respect for my predecessor and it was my boss, Michelle Hood at the time, that I just thought, well, let's, let's give this moment, you know, some time. But some other people on the leadership team said, well, that sounds all well and good, but we need you to be the president because and CEO because we have so many efforts and initiatives that are just starting to get a little momentum and just starting to get formed or some things that we think you can help us do. And so, so I did throw my hat in the ring and the rest, as they say, is history. Great. And what a time it was. You started, as you said, April 1st, 2020. Well, what a time to, to start a new job in healthcare. What do you remember about that first day? I remember that our marketing communications people wanted to do a video and an introductory video kind of thing. And to post it on our social media, push it out to our website, you know, all those kinds of things. And send it out, email it out to our 12,000 plus colleagues. And I can remember, said, okay. And so the camera's right there in front of me. And I remember starting off with, you know, square shoulders, chin high, this is what we face. We're facing the unknown in this pandemic. We have great people. And I, I remember, I remember breaking down with emotion as I'm doing a bit right now at the moment, missing the fact that I was, I was looking in the camera. Right. <laughs> so I wasn't looking in faces and hearts and souls, and, yeah. but I could, I could still, that's who I was speaking to. And I think that moment, the weight of the moment, you know, in a, not a weigh it down, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being incapacitated by the pressure. I, the, 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 the energy inside of me to lead the organization through this once a century, hopefully kind of situation, like the moment had come. I know that you've 
you've sort of tried to pursue what you call big audacious goals. And maybe you could just sort of share a few words about those. After good study and good teamwork, good dialogue and looking at what our needs were, and especially what the needs are around the state, our big audacious goals in Northern Light include a center of excellence in primary care, a center of excellence in behavioral health. We're very fortunate. We have Acadia Hospital, mental health hospital with all sorts of ambulatory programs. And we do things. We cover 19 plus emergency rooms for telepsych care. So we do so much around the state already. And the next pandemic, the next epidemic, it already is in, in America is mental health issues. Mm-hmm. We can do something about it. So, so a center of excellence in behavioral health, it's five-star quality and A-grade safety everywhere that we provide care. And it's a digital transformation, a digital experience. So making sure that, you know, we have a call to action is what we call it for digital experience. And that is a consumer experience, just as it is in so many other aspects of our life. You have the impact of digital, making things easier and quicker and faster and better. Let's, let's invest in the digital side of things. Healthcare notoriously has been paper shufflers. We cannot do that. And we need to make sure for caregivers that they have a digital experience making their lives easier so they don't have to go home and do medical records and things of that nature. So the digital experience and the last is invest in our communities in a way that still ends up with a a strengthened financial balance sheet for our system, but invest into the infrastructure and community. So we got the approval from the state and we've already broken ground this spring on new hospitals in Blue Hill, new hospital in Greenville, and the expanded site there in Acadia for doubling the amount of private beds, especially for pediatrics at our mental health hospital. The other important aspect is that Maine Coast Hospital for a new OB unit, which will also have the corollary effect of adding to their private room across the hospital too. Certainly a lot going on. I think in a past conversation, you talked about going from COO to CEO as a kind of liberating experience. Yeah, I heard that term from a CEO of a health system in Minnesota, and she had been there for about 15 years and different capacities before that. And she was leaving and she was giving just her thoughts. And she was saying, well, one thing I'll leave with all of you as a group of CEOs is being CEOs liberating. And we all laughed. And I share with my board and we all laugh, but it really is. And it has nothing to do with, well, because now I'm the boss and I just tell people what to do. Zero, zip, zilch. That's like, forget it. Maybe one at one point in time in my career, I was that way. But now I've grown to really value that, you know, true humility is a strength. Being a humble person. It doesn't mean being passive and timid. It means being humble. It means that I'd rather learn from you than to just be, you know, to tell people what to do. There's so much to learn from because, and then by doing so, by, by the liberation is that then I can really listen to people. I can ask questions and then take that and do something good with it. And then it just gets better and better as far as that. So I am always inspired by others. And by doing that through my actions, I then earn more trust because especially in these last couple of years with COVID, you know, there's the people have talked about resilient, you know, is our healthcare workers are so resilient, et cetera. And 
absolutely, and my goodness, the 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 people of Maine, the healthcare workers in Maine, and the family of Northern Lighthouse are the most resilient people I've ever seen in my life. But the other thing is helping people to decompress because while the strongest asset is our people and our resilience, it's also at the same time the most fragile element. So we're always looking for ways to help our staff decompress from a very compressed care delivery. Right. Excellent. You certainly have had a lot of staying directions in your career and, and life path and the last few years as, as CEO of Northern Light Health. What have you learned about yourself, you know, as a leader? Yeah, well, allow me to quote another chef. <laughs> uh, I see a theme is, here. Yeah, this is another famous chef, Jose Andres. He goes, we don't have planning meetings, we just do it. And so that's the one thing I learned. I, I, I learned it about myself, but I exercised it more. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway. It was always inside of me, but in exercising it now as CEO, and I could see how we could make really profound impacts across the state by doing that. And that would be, you know, just do it. Like I remember getting a call from on a Sunday evening from Commissioner Lambrew, who said, you know, on Tuesday, we're going to get our first vaccine. Mm-hmm. And we know that you, Northern Light, have planned ahead because back then you needed to have deep freeze, like really deep freeze freezers, not your freezer at home. And we anticipated that was going to be the case and we bought four of them. And so she said, you have half of the deep freezers in the state of Maine. Are you ready? I said, yes. And so then I contacted my team and they're like, okay, let's figure it out. Same thing with all the monoclonal antibodies and setting up those kinds of treatments and and clinics and the like and mass vaccination sites. All of those things we started with, yes. So that's what I learned, like Jose Andres. You don't need all sorts of planning meetings and things like that or something that's clear that you need to do, just do it and figure it out as you get going. So that's been, uh, again, liberating. And I think liberating for a lot of people that I work with too. I'm curious, would you ever consider going abroad again or are you here in the U.S. to stay? Oh, no, I'm here to, in Maine to stay. And I, I go on record at any time anybody asks that question directly, which I'm glad you did, or indirectly is, I love it here. I love what I'm doing. I love the people I work with. I love the culture of Maine, the people of Maine. And I love the fact that I'm in a health system that, again, is not about, you know, competing with another like health system in a very densely populated area where there's all sorts of access and choice for for the consumers. But that We are in so many different communities across the state where each one's unique and different, and each one is going to have to have a different approach and different style. But if we do it together, we can do so in ways that they could never do by themselves. This has been a production of MainBiz. Find out more about this podcast and other MainBiz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. The Main Biz Podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. 
subscribe to the Main Biz Podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.